Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 17, Turnabout is Fair Play. Williamson Durley had been a merchant in Putnam County, Illinois, selling mostly to Native Americans. He was an active member of his local congregational church. By all rights, he should have been a solid Whig. But Putnam County was a hotbed of abolitionism. The genius of universal emancipation, an anti-slavery newspaper, published there. Durley himself may have assisted fugitive slaves. And he was no Whig. Durley belonged to the Liberty Party, which called for the immediate abolition of slavery and, quote, the restoration of equality of rights among men in every state where the party exists or may exist. The Liberty Party was small, but it attracted Whigs unhappy with the organization's ambiguous stance on slavery, the nomination of slaveholder Henry Clay for president in 1844, and Clay's waffling on the annexation of Texas. In the 1844 presidential election, the Liberty Party nominee got nearly 16,000 votes in New York State, which Clay lost by just over 5,000. The election of the aggressively pro-slavery Democrat James K. Polk caused many contemporary Whigs, including Abraham Lincoln, to blame the loss on the Liberty Party, or, as one put it, the asinine fatuity of the Abolition Party. In October 1845, Lincoln sent a letter to Durley, who was working on a Whig-Liberty Party alliance in Putnam County. Lincoln did not conceal his frustration over the abolitionists' refusal to support Clay. He wrote, quote, I can only judge from what a single one of them, meaning the Liberty Party, told me. It was this. We are not to do evil that good may come. This general proposition is doubtless correct, but did it apply? If by your votes you could have prevented the extension, etc., of slavery, would it not have been good and not evil, so to have used your votes even though it involved the casting of them for a slaveholder? By the fruit the tree is to be known. An evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. If the fruit of electing Mr. Clay would have been to prevent the extension of slavery, could the act of electing have been evil? Lincoln and other Whig activists revered Clay, and his loss hit them especially hard. One said, quote, God help us preserve the people, for they seem not to know what they do. The misery mixed with rage at evidence of fraud in the election. Louisiana tipped to the Democrats thanks to Plaquemines Parish, where over 1,000 ballots were cast in a place where 538 voters lived. With considerably less evidence, Whigs accused Democrats of getting illegal votes from recently arrived immigrants. The real picture, of course, was much more complicated. In the rise and fall of the American Whig Party, historian Michael Holt wrote that in most northern states, Whig gains generally exceeded those of the Liberty Party. But Democratic votes 
surged still higher. Holt estimates that Democrats captured over 72% of new voters in the 1844 election. Many of these voters were immigrants, and while it's possible some voted illegally, nearly all of them embraced the Democrats after the Whigs made some foolish overtures toward nativists in New York and Pennsylvania. In the South, the promise that Texas annexation would make cheap land available for whites boosted the Democrats. Lincoln's speeches in 1844 focused on economics, not immigration or annexation. He defended the rights of immigrants during the campaign. And in his letter to Durley, Lincoln wrote he was, quote, never much interested in the Texas question. He added, quote, I never could see much good to come of annexation, inasmuch as there were already a free Republican people on our own model. On the other hand, I never could clearly see how the annexation would augment the evil of slavery. If abolitionists had seen this letter, many would have said this was why the Whigs lost their votes. By 1845, the Whigs could no longer dismiss the abolitionists as a fringe group. While no majority in the electorate, abolitionists published many newspapers and numbered in the hundreds of thousands. They were particularly influential among evangelical voters, critical to the Whig coalition. The movement seemed new to contemporaries, but there had always been abolitionists. Historian Manisha Sinha, in The Slaves' Cause, her superb history of abolition, notes the first abolitionists were enslaved people who resisted their bondage. African Americans always dominated the freedom movement and played the key role in destroying Northern slavery after the American Revolution. Some whites, most notably Quakers, joined the movement. But Caucasians with anti-slavery sentiments refused to accept the freemen as a brother, viewing African Americans as aliens. In 1700, the minister Samuel Sewell published The Selling of Joseph, the first anti-slavery tract published in what became the United States. Sewell refuted many of the biblical arguments used to justify slavery. But he wrote of African Americans, Quote, there is such a disparity in their conditions, color, and hair that they can never embody with us and grow up into orderly families to the peopling of the land, but still remain in our body politic as a kind of extravasant blood. This attitude passed like a dominant gene through subsequent anti-slavery thought in the United States. In 1816, several wealthy whites, many slaveholders, founded the American Colonization Society. It was superficially an anti-slavery organization, but its real purpose was to encourage the departure of free blacks, whose existence rebuked the ideological foundations of slavery. President James Monroe, a slaveholder, once said free blacks were, quote, a very dangerous people who lived by pilfering and corrupted the slave. Henry Clay championed colonization throughout his life, and Lincoln supported it for most of his. By contrast, abolitionists condemned slavery, rejected colonization, and demanded equal citizenship for African Americans. The abolitionist William Yates, a Baptist minister who was black, 
once sarcastically suggested using a device to measure skin tone and, quote, ascertain whether it reaches a shade which robs a Native American of his property and rights and renders him an alien in the land of his birth. Abolitionists drew their members from working-class people of all races. As Sinha writes, quote, Farmers, mechanics, and artisans formed its base. Most of the signatures in urban abolition petitions were those of working men, a fact that challenges the portrayal of abolition as a predominantly bourgeois endeavor. A majority of petitioners owned less property than their fellow citizens and were skilled workers, shoemakers, carpenters, painters, blacksmiths, or laborers. Historians call this movement second-wave abolitionism. One of the early geniuses of the movement was David Walker, a black man born free in North Carolina who later moved to Boston, where he became a used clothes merchant and a lay preacher. Walker urged African Americans to unite to secure their rights and gave voice to the anger in the black community over slavery and segregation. In an 1828 speech to the Massachusetts General Colored Association, Walker said, quote, Do not 208 years of very intolerable sufferings teach us the actual necessity of a general union amongst us? Do we not know indeed the horrid dilemma into which we are, and from which we must exert ourselves to be extricated? Shall we keep slumbering on, with our arms completely folded up, exclaiming every now and then against our miseries, and yet never do the least thing to ameliorate our position or that of posterity? In 1829, Walker published Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, where he condemned slavery, discrimination, and a lack of educational opportunities north and south. Using religious and sometimes apocalyptic language, Walker warned that slavery would bring the hand of God on the country and defended the right of the enslaved to fight back. He wrote, quote, Now, I ask you, had you not rather be killed than to be slave to a tyrant who takes the life of your mother, wife, and children? Look upon your mother, wife, and children, and answer God Almighty, and believe this, that it is no more harm for you to kill a man who is trying to kill you than it is for you to take a drink of water when thirsty. In fact, the man who will stand still and let another murder him is worse than an infidel, and if he has common sense, ought not to be pitied. Walker's appeal was a bestseller and influenced many abolitionists, including a young printer named William Lloyd Garrison. A white man raised in poverty by a single mother, Garrison had worked on several newspapers and grew close to African-American abolitionists, who he always credited with shaping his views. Garrison said Walker had, quote, an impassioned and determined spirit. In 1831, with the backing of black subscribers, Garrison began publishing The Liberator, a weekly newspaper that demanded immediate abolition and equal rights for African-Americans. The Liberator never had more than a few thousand subscribers at any given time, but Garrison knew how to amplify its voice. He was adept at a kind of trolling known as slang-wanging. Garrison would pick fights with pro-slavery editors, 
who would furiously respond to Garrison and their columns, and inadvertently spread his ideas. As Henry Mayer, Garrison's biographer, wrote, quote, Southern editors not only saw the paper, but reprinted material from it, accompanied by bitter condemnation, which was then picked up by other newspapers and eventually worked over again by Garrison in a lively cycle that kept his name and cause before the public and enabled the Liberator to make a noise out of proportion to its size or subscription base. Garrison and some of his supporters balked at advancing their goals through politics, fearing the compromises required to win elections would dilute their egalitarian message. But others, who saw no other way to peacefully overturn slavery in the United States, founded the Liberty Party in 1840. It had little success at first. The party had no appeal to the unconverted, and Garrisonians stayed aloof from it. Its first presidential nominee, a former slaveholder named James Burney, who freed his slaves and embraced abolition, got fewer than 7,000 votes in 1840. But as abolition spread, the party grew. Burney's totals jumped to 62,000 in 1844. The Liberty Party got just over 3% of the vote in Illinois that year. The state's dominant, pro-slavery Democrats had little to fear from the Liberty Party. But Whigs throughout the state realized they would have to accommodate them. Lincoln could grumble at this and at men like Williamson Durley. But after 1844, Lincoln would never again ignore the abolitionists. Lincoln needed all the support he could get as he worked to secure the Whig nomination for Congress in 1846. He had already taken a step in his professional life to mollify the abolitionists and neutralize the charge of aristocracy that sunk him in 1843. In the fall of 1844, Stephen Logan told Lincoln he wanted to dissolve their partnership to enter business with his son. The two men parted amicably and stayed on good terms throughout Lincoln's life. With Logan walking out the door, Lincoln decided to establish his own firm. He knew who he wanted to work with, a talkative 26-year-old who had been studying law in Logan and Lincoln's office and drafting legal documents. His name was William Herndon. As Herndon remembered, Lincoln came, quote, rushing up into my quarters to make his proposal. Herndon wrote, quote, I confess I was surprised when he invited me to become his partner. I was young in the practice and painfully aware of my want of ability and experience. But when he remarked in his earnest, honest way, Billy, I can trust you if you can trust me, I felt relieved and accepted his generous proposal. William Herndon was born on Christmas Day, 1818, in Greene County, Kentucky, not too far from Lincoln's birthplace. When Herndon was two years old, the family moved to Sangamon County, where his father Archer operated a tavern and made a windfall from land speculation. Herndon received a good formal education and spent a year in college before going to work as a clerk in Joshua Speed's general store, sleeping in the same room as Lincoln and Speed for a few years. When Lincoln made his offer, Herndon was married and had two young children, 
the first of what would eventually be nine children with two different wives. Herndon was a warm and engaging father who liked to take his children on walks through the nearby wilderness and show them parts of a flower. He styled himself an intellectual and had one of the most extensive libraries in Springfield. As historian David Herbert Donald wrote, quote, He read enthusiastically and undiscriminatingly. Ready to share what he learned with anyone, he bubbled over with talk about new ideas. He was an exciting man to have around. Herndon also believed he could predict the future by feeling things in his bones, which led to Lincoln periodically greeting his partner with, Billy, how is your bones philosophy this morning? Lincoln's choice of Herndon puzzled many people in Springfield, including Herndon himself. For starters, Herndon had almost no sense of humor. Lincoln's jokes usually went right over his head. Herndon was a capable attorney, but he had personal demons, including an addiction to alcohol that he struggled with throughout his life. And Lincoln had a number of more lucrative opportunities with established attorneys. John Todd Stewart, Lincoln's first partner, wanted to get back into business with him and appears to have been hurt by Lincoln's decision. Herndon claimed Stewart's later falling out with Lincoln started from this date. Lincoln likely had personal and political reasons for choosing Herndon. First and foremost, the two men got along. Lincoln really liked Herndon, who he called Billy throughout their time together, and Herndon appears to have viewed Lincoln as a father figure. Donald writes, quote, Herndon became much more than a useful friend. He fulfilled one of Lincoln's basic psychological needs. Lincoln liked being the senior figure, the master, and he nurtured Herndon's intense idealization just as he had encouraged it among his soldiers in the Black Hawk War. His reward was a devotion that was almost worshipful. Herndon was also a stout Whig who ran with the working professional class critical to the local party. Herndon kept Lincoln connected with this rougher branch of the Whigs, who attended to favor Edward Baker, much like Stewart's choice of Lincoln as partner took some of the aristocratic curse off of Stewart. Finally, Herndon was an abolitionist, who subscribed to abolitionist newspapers and corresponded with their leaders. Whether Lincoln had this in mind when he selected Herndon as his partner, Herndon would provide a valuable window on a movement that Lincoln had to reckon with. With Herndon and other friends loyally assisting him, Lincoln fully expected the rotation system agreed on at the 1843 Pekin Convention to pull him into Congress. After John Hardin stepped down in 1844, Edward Baker won election and did not seek re-election in 1846. Lincoln was next in line and expected a clear path to the nomination. Then Hardin decided he wanted to go back to the U.S. House of Representatives. Hardin served effectively in his single term in Congress and remained prominent in Illinois after his return. He served as a brigadier general of the state militia, playing a major role in the expulsion of the Mormons from Illinois in 1844. Hardin had also delivered well-received speeches calling for the expansion of the nation's borders, a decidedly unwig-like position that played well with Illinois' overwhelmingly Democratic electorate. Lincoln may have known or suspected Hardin's intentions by the summer. 
In September 1845, he visited Hardin at his mansion and asked him if he planned to run. Hardin left things ambiguous. Leaving nothing to chance, Lincoln wrote letter after letter to Whig newspaper editors in central Illinois, begging them to keep Hardin's name out of their columns. To Tazewell Whig editor Benjamin James, Lincoln wrote, quote, It would give Hardin a great start, and perhaps use me up, if the Whig papers of the district should nominate him for Congress. If your feelings toward me are the same as when I saw you, which I have no reason to doubt, I wish you would let nothing appear in your paper which may operate against me. You understand. Lincoln, over and over again, stressed the Pekin Convention settled on a succession plan. He kept coming back to one phrase, turnabout is fair play. Lincoln was careful not to demean Hardin, focusing instead on the agreed-upon process. In a letter to James that December, Lincoln wrote, quote, Let nothing be said against Hardin. Nothing deserves to be said against him. Let the pith of the whole argument be, turnabout is fair play. By the end of December, notices appeared in Whig newspapers that formally endorsed Lincoln. Lincoln also pressed his case while traveling the legal circuit. In a letter to the general on January 12, 1846, a friend of Hardin's wrote that Lincoln had, quote, sought and obtained pledges from most of what we call leading men in this vicinity. He added, quote, I know that you have many warm and ardent friends here who are ready at a suitable time to do all you can reasonably ask of them. As the matter now stands, however, the common conversation is, Hardin is a good fellow and did us and himself great credit and honor by his course in Congress. Lincoln is also a good fellow and had worked hard and faithfully for the party. If he desires to go to Congress, let him go this time. Turnabout is fair play. This latter remark I hear made in the store daily. Having lost the game, Hardin tried to change the rules. In January, the general proposed replacing the convention with a kind of primary system and electoral college, where candidates who won the Whig vote in the individual counties would get the delegates there. Critically, Hardin's plan would also have prevented candidates from campaigning outside their home counties. Lincoln instantly saw the trap. He wrote Hardin on January 19th, quote, It seems to me that on reflection you will see the fact of your having been in Congress has, in various ways, so spread your name in the district as to give you a decided advantage in such a stipulation. Lincoln declared himself, quote, entirely satisfied with the old system under which you and Baker were successfully nominated and elected to Congress. Hardin then accused Lincoln of deceiving him in the 1843 convention. He claimed Lincoln tried to get him nominated for governor, an office no Whig in Illinois could possibly win, to get him out of the congressional race. Hardin wrote, quote, During the fall courts, whilst I learned you were obtaining pledges from all the Whigs you could to support you for the next candidate, my name was run up as a candidate for governor by one of your friends under circumstances which now leave no room for doubt that the design was to keep my name out of view for Congress so that the Whigs 
might be more easily influenced to commit to go for you. Lincoln strongly denied the charge and countered that some of Hardin's friends had tried to nominate him for governor. Lincoln stuck to his position of turnabout is fair play. He wrote, quote, I desire nothing from the Pekin Convention. If I am not, in services done the party in capacity to serve in the future, near enough your equal, when added to the fact of your having had a turn to entitle me to the nomination, I scorn it on any and all grounds. Eventually, Hardin threw in the towel, formally withdrawing in a letter published in the Sangamo Journal on February 26th. He defended his election plan and claimed that his friends had been compromised, as he put it. But the blue blood of this man, who rarely encountered defeat, boiled with resentment. Hardin never spoke to Lincoln again. With the general out of the contest, Lincoln easily won the 7th District Congressional nomination at a convention in Petersburg on May 1st. Six days later, the Sangamo Journal called Lincoln, quote, a good Whig, a good man, an able speaker, and richly deserves, as he enjoys, the confidence of the Whigs of this district and of the state. The Whigs expected the Democrats to nominate John Calhoun, Lincoln's old surveying boss, to run for the seat. Historian Michael Burlingame notes the Sangamo Journal escalated its attacks on Calhoun prior to the Democratic Convention held on May 13th. But the Democrats surprised them by nominating Peter Cartwright, a circuit-riding Methodist preacher. Cartwright, 62 years old, in the summer of 1846, was an imposing figure, standing six feet tall, with black curls on his head and fiery eyes. Burlingame writes, quote, A contemporary said, His countenance could blaze with mirth, flash with contempt, frown with wrath, or darken with defiance. His intellectual facilities corresponded with his superb physical organism, and his perceptions were quick, clear, and usually correct. Cartwright was a Kentucky native who dated his conversion to age 16 when he felt crushing guilt for having danced at a wedding. Perhaps to relieve himself of the burden, Cartwright later crashed a country dance and turned the festivities into an all-night session of groaning and prayer. He moved from Kentucky to Illinois in 1824 due to his objections to slavery, and in particular his objection to white men having sex with enslaved women. Though he saw these women as temptresses and not the victims of sexual assault, they actually were. He served two terms in the legislature and claimed his sole goal there was keeping slavery out of Illinois. But Cartwright was no abolitionist. He accused them of, quote, unjustifiable agitation. Lincoln appears to have disliked Cartwright, who may have reminded him of the emotional preachers who turned him off from religion in his youth. As you'll recall from Episode 7, Cartwright also edged Lincoln out for a legislative seat in 1832. Americans of the time generally looked down on preachers running for office, and Lincoln was the likely author of an anonymous and not exactly accurate attack on Cartwright in 1834, which said, quote, He has one of the largest and best improved farms in Sangamon County, with other property in proportion. 
And how has he got it? Only by contributions he has been able to levy upon and collect from a priest-ridden church. It will not do to say he has earned it by the sweat of his brow. For although he may sometimes labor, all know that he spends the great part of his time in preaching and electioneering. With this kind of antagonism, the 1846 congressional campaign had the potential to become a prairie-shaking battle between the lawyer and the preacher. But the race turned out to be quiet and even boring. Whig activists, of course, remembered a thrilling contest. Herndon later wrote, quote, The very thought of my associates becoming a member of Congress was a great stimulus to my self-importance. Outside the converted, though, the race drew little interest. It's possible that two straight Whig victories in the district made the outcome a foregone conclusion. Cartwright was a poor candidate who preached as much as he campaigned, and at one point in the race, condemned Baptists. For his part, Lincoln worked hard and left nothing to chance. He met with two local abolitionists during the campaign to stress his anti-slavery beliefs. His answers apparently satisfied them, and they spread the word that Lincoln was an acceptable Whig. But Lincoln only delivered seven speeches during the campaign, mostly on the tariff. Late in the race, Lincoln heard rumors that Cartwright or his partisans were reviving the old charges that Lincoln was an infidel, or, as he later described the allegation, an open scoffer at Christianity. Whether the Democrats were actually doing this is unclear, but the rumors infuriated Lincoln. He wrote, quote, Cartwright never heard me utter a word in any way indicating my opinions on religious matters in his life. Still, he was concerned enough that he prepared a handbill distributed in the neighborhoods where the charges were allegedly made. After the election, Lincoln had the message printed in local newspapers. The handbill said, quote, That I am not a member of any Christian church is true, but I have never denied the truth of the scriptures, and I have never spoken with intentional disrespect of religion in general, or of any denomination of Christians in particular. Lincoln went on to say that he had been raised to believe in the doctrine of necessity, which he defined as, quote, that the human mind is impelled to action or held in rest by some power over which the mind itself has no control. In other words, a form of predestination that throws doubt on free will. Lincoln wrote, quote, I have sometimes, with one, two, or three, but never publicly, tried to maintain this opinion in argument. The habit of arguing this, however, I have entirely left off for more than five years. And I add here, I have always understood the same opinion to be held by several of the Christian denominations. Historians like Burlingame and Alan Guelzo note that the handbill doesn't really address the charge of infidelity. Guelzo suggests that Lincoln added the section on the doctrine of necessity, possibly because there were other charges floating around that he was a fatalist. Guelzo writes, quote, To a 19th century audience, grilled on evangelical Protestant notions of moral responsibility, this was negative campaigning at its worst. But it's notable that Lincoln does not make any profession of faith in this statement. He neither scoffed at nor embraced Orthodox Christianity.
In the end, it was Cartwright's religion and not Lincoln's that proved decisive. Samuel Treat, an Illinois Supreme Court judge, later remembered that one Democrat seriously considered voting for Lincoln due to his aversion to, quote, the meddling of preachers in politics. In an era where voters publicly announced their choices, this would have been a major act of protest, and Lincoln told the man to defer his decision until Election Day. Treat said, quote, On that morning, he, Lincoln, called on the Democrat and said, I am now satisfied that I have got the preacher by the balls, and you had better keep out of the ring. On August 3rd, Lincoln got 56% of the vote to Cartwright's 42%. The Liberty Party candidate, Elihu Walcott, got just under 3% of the vote, getting most of his support in Putnam County, the home of Lincoln's correspondent, Williamson Durley. Lincoln squeaked out a three-vote victory there. He lost Woodford and Marshall, where Cartwright's accusations allegedly circulated. But Lincoln took every other county and rolled up a plurality of over 1,500 votes in an election with more than 11,000 ballots cast. After the race, Lincoln appears to have suffered a letdown. He confided to Joshua Speed that October, quote, Being elected to Congress, though I am very grateful to my friends, has not pleased me as much as I expected. Joshua Wolf Schenck, in his book Lincoln's Melancholy, writes that those who suffer chronic depression, like Lincoln, can be more prone to the sense of emptiness after an achievement. Schenck writes, quote, What looks to the world like a triumph, many depressed people see as merely another step on an unending ladder. All told, one is left with the sense that, rather than the first step toward an illustrious future, Lincoln took his election as another indication that the earthly world had no real pleasure in store for him. As Lincoln waited for Congress to convene, he watched the nation fall into war with Mexico. That May, Lincoln had joined a group in the State House encouraging recruitment for the conflict. John Hardin would go to war, as would Edward Baker, who spoke enthusiastically to the crowd. But when Lincoln was asked to speak, he demurred. Gideon Harris, a law student in Lincoln's office, remembered Lincoln saying, quote, He was not going into the war, and as he was not going himself, he did not feel like telling others to go. He would simply leave it to each individual to do as his duty called for. In the coming months, Lincoln and many Whigs would turn these doubts into sharp criticisms of the war. Next time, we'll discuss the U.S. invasion of Mexico, a humanitarian catastrophe that had major consequences for the United States. We'll also look at the men who made the war and how Lincoln and the other Whigs opposed it. <laughs>